0: Welcome to PR360, where every week the brightest minds in public relations, communications, and media discuss the topics and trends you need to know about. PR360 was produced in partnership with Global Results Communications. Now here's your host, Todd Perry. Welcome back to PR360. My guest today is Sean O'Leary a talented communications professional with nearly two decades of experience in journalism, marketing, and public relations. He's the vice president of Susan Davis International, which does communications for military and veterans groups, the federal government, technology, and healthcare. Prior to that, he served as director for the Merit Group, leading practice for technology companies focused on working with federal, state, and local governments, as well as the Department of Defense. His work has earned him several honors from the Connecticut Society of Professional Journalists, including an award for his multi part series on youth obesity. Uh, Sean, is there anything we missed here?
1: No, that was a very good bio of me. I like that. (laughs) It sounds good when it's being read out loud.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good, good. It's, you know, as it was the old joke, there was a Gilbert Gottfried had a podcast, and uh, they used to read very, very long intros for people. They would go on for like six minutes. And then he would go, your intro also works as your obituary. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, heavy, heavy stuff. Never Sorry. thought about it like that, but
1: I think you're right.
0: <laughs> so, Sean, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we have a lot of interesting places to get to. But I, I want to start with, uh, I guess you got to work with Tom Hanks and Adam Driver last week on a project. What was that like?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of our clients at, at SDI is the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, uh, and they do a lot of work with military caregivers. They've been a longtime client of SDI, and every, uh, every fall since I think either 2018 or 2019, they have been hosting an annual gala in Washington, D.C., and Tom Hanks and Savannah Guthrie, who hosted the Today Show, uh, they're there every year, either as some form of a host, co host uh, the actually the annual award they give out is the, the you know the Tom Hanks Champion Caregiver of the Year award. So he's always there, and then Adam Driver, who himself is a former Marine and veteran. Um, obviously, this is a you know something that's near and dear to his heart. Um, so yeah, so he was there, um, and I always think it's such an interesting event because you had mentioned sort of my former job right at the Merrick Group. And we did nothing but technology clients, Um, a lot of technology PR. You don't really get to hang out with like Tom Hanks and stuff. So when I moved over to SCI, one of the first things I did was work in this event. And I put a picture on my LinkedIn of like me and Tom Hanks. And all my former coworkers are like, oh, my gosh, what are you doing now? (laughs) So it's like the one one night a year, we kind of turn into like a publicist. You know, it's like Entertainment Tonight is there. The Today Show, you kind of do the old school sort of press gaggle where it's like Tom and Savannah. They have about five to ten minutes they can have with media. You get them all in place, get the cameras. uh, And basically the footage you see on if you watch Entertainment Tonight or access Hollywood, um, it was a rare opportunity to do that in D.C.,
0: Oh, that's, that's great because it, not only do you get to experience these people up close, but also you get to do a lot of good, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Tom, it's so funny. Everyone who uh, ever sees that I've met Tom Hanks, they always ask, like, is he as nice in real life as he seems to be? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, he's absolutely <laughs> like just the perfect celebrity. If you could, like, sort of draw up, like, the perfect celebrity in terms of giving back both with his time and his money, and everything. He's just such a perfect ambassador. So he sort of lives up to the hype, which uh, makes makes my job easier when I'm doing the PR for him.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's nice to hear that it's, the, you know, just as you'd expect in person. So uh, recently uh, you joined the board of the Moral Compass Foundation. And can you give a brief overview of its mission and hope, how you hope to lend your talents?
1: Yeah. So it's sort of interesting. So at SDI, you know, we, I think I just mentioned this, right? We do a lot of work with, like the veteran community, the defense community. Um, and in the wake of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021, a lot of these nonprofit organizations sort of popped up, especially in the D.C. area. Um, so one of them called React D.C. was our pro bono client for 2022. Obviously, really focused on helping people get out of Afghanistan. And then for the folks that did get here to the United States, you know, getting them into employment, you know, living situations, et cetera. Um, and so through that, um, the woman who was running that was the CEO of React D.C., Um, Her and someone else, uh, this man named Tito Torres, who is the leader of the Moral Compass Federation, uh, asked me to join the board of this group. So basically what the group is, is about 25 to 30 of these smaller nonprofits That all basically came together after the withdrawal of Afghanistan, kind of handling different sort of aspects of both the withdrawal, veterans, you know, caregiving, um, a lot of aspects and reasons called the moral compass federation is just to think of a moral injury that comes from serving um, our country. Um, So that's sort of what the group does. And my role is sort of the PR communications guys to kind of help them sort of get established. They're a relatively new group. Um, If you go to their website is a a new website. Um, They've actually just launched it like a healthcare initiative about a month ago. So my role right now on the board as we continue to grow that um, is just kind of point them in the right direction in terms of media, marketing, social media, um, just getting them off the ground. Um, And I I did not serve. So I'm also kind of serve the role as the civilian Mm -hmm. on the board as well.
0: Well, you know, that could be helpful to give a little bit of perspective. If everybody's, you know, coming from a service background, you go, mm-hmm. "Wait a minute, th- here's how people do it in the civilian world." Because I'm sure there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes when you're working in communications and and both hands have to come together and shake and they probably have different working philosophies about how they do things, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially with, uh, with the work that these folks are doing, right? Like they are, they are in it on a daily basis. So when they're doing this work, they're not thinking like, how do I promote this? <laughs> what would make a good Twitter post, you know, or yeah. X post, right? Uh, they're focused on sort of doing the daily work. So it's sort of my role, again, as the civilian who gets to see all the good work, and be like, you know what, this is what we should highlight. You know, these are the places that we should get some marketing out there. These are the events we should be out there. So it's sort of a, a fresh pair of eyes. That's sort of the best thing I can give them
0: to to get something something a little more serious as someone who's in communications who has worked closely with the department of defense military veterans i think we've noticed a bit of a switch recently where it's becoming very difficult in these areas of you know war of world conflict for the average person to know what's going on because if you just like look at, you know say the recent mm-hmm. thing happening in Gaza you look on X and it's like so much of that is not true or you know false information as someone in communications what what's the attitude around the military the communications world i know that's a big question to ask you forty yeah. things in there but
1: yeah i mean well i would say for the one thing for a lot of our clients it's like they don't want to be getting they don't want to get involved in controversy um, so I think that that's a big thing that we sort of focus on is that even if they want to help with something like the withdrawal in Afghanistan, the conflict right now in Israel, or you know, some of the response efforts, it's like they want to do good, but they do not want to get caught into sort of what you were describing, which is sort of the back and forth on social media about who's right, who's wrong, sort of being you know what's being reported, what's being propaganda, what's actually being the story. So, sort of our role on the communication side, on the military side, is to A, make sure that our clients are kind of talking about what they want to talk about, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also kind of steering their clear of sort of the instant reactions and the back and forth when it comes to the opinion piece of it. Um, and, and that's frankly, I think it's sort of like a continuation. I really first started that in like the, the Trump era, right? When Trump got elected president, especially here in DC, everything became very much about you know, the clickbait journalism, I guess, <laughs> the yeah. people kind of describes it as that you did not want to get caught up in that, even though there were important things that like, you know, Trump and his administration were talking about, you did not want to get caught up in the Twitter back and forth. And I think we're just seeing an extension of that um, because, you know, with the social media platforms, especially Twitter, as it is right now you know, there's just no way to sort of control your message sometimes. Yeah. So you just kind of want to steer clear of it. Uh, so that's kind of been one thing that we've sort of been working on with our clients, especially focus on the veteran side. They are very much like they do not see red or blue. They do not see politics. They're trying to focus on the veteran, um right? They call it purple, right? They don't see color. They're just trying to help the veteran in need. So I think that's the focus that we try to focus on.
0: Oh, that's great. I, I feel like that type of communications uh could be, used by many more people in this country to forge (laughs) a better way forward so what are the differences Uh, as somebody with a big big background in communications there's in pr we talk about business to consumer we talk about business to business how does business to government slash military differ Mm -hmm. going going in that direction
1: yeah i mean i think the big thing is just understanding their language Um, I I do think that like B to G, you know, business to government or business to military, sort of the same message, especially like I do a lot of work with technology companies, the message that they're trying to get to the consumer or to the other business is very similar to the message they want to get to across to the government or the military. But you just kind of have to talk about it in their terms. Um, And a very basic one, right, is like the government and the military, they view their objectives as missions, right? It is about achieving the mission, right? So it's kind of using their language and understanding their specific pain points, too, um, I think is Is a little different because they have very unique (laughs) use cases and things that, you know, when you're trying to sell cyber to, say, you know, a regular company. You know they have certain things that they have to deal with, but if you're trying to sell a cyber product to like the DOD or a federal agency, there are so many different more levels that you have to go through. Um, so I think your marketing and your messaging has to become a little bit more pinpointed um, and really aim directly at sort of who you think the buyer is going to be. Um, so I think that would probably be the biggest change is kind of the language that you use and just being extremely targeted in your outreach. Uh, because just when you think about government, it's like, okay, there are military conferences. Well, there's also cyber conferences within military conferences, <laughs> or, you know, women in military for cyber, like they get very, very niche. Um, so I think that's another thing that is a little different when it comes to B2G that you don't see in sort of those those other, uh, you know, B2B or anything.
0: Got it. And then is it difficult to know who exactly you're speaking to you know what I'm saying? Within a bureaucracy, right? <laughs> You've got, do you, do you talk to the guy at the top? Do you talk to the guy at the You know, uh, is it difficult to really pinpoint the
1: target of the message? I was about to say, it. we kind of, I mean, at least with our government contractor clients, it's kind of both, right? There's the top-down approach where it's like, okay, this is messaging that we are aiming at agency leaders. Like if the, C, if the CISO of this agency reads that this is exactly who this is for, but then you also understand that there are hundreds of thousands of IT workers, cybersecurity workers, within these federal agencies that also have these similar pain points. Um, So that's the bottom-up approach, and that's where you see things at like events and conferences and stuff with that type of marketing. Um, And then, again, from our perspective, it's sort of relying on the client, right? The client has that sort of intimate knowledge of either working with a federal agency, working with Department of Defense. It's like, okay, these are the relationships we have, this is what we have to go after, and so they kind of guide us (laughs) a little bit if, if we're trying to find someone in particular.
0: Ah, okay, cool. And speaking of someone in particular, uh, you recently got to work with uh, President Biden. Uh, what was the situation and how did that go?
1: Yes, yeah, so it was sort of interesting. So we actually the first time we worked with President Biden was early 2021 and we were just coming out of COVID. So it was one of these like mixed uh, in-person virtual events. Um, so that was just sort of interesting to kind of get an introduction to sort of his team um, and getting to work with him But the, the big of it Which you probably saw Was the MLK Memorial Had their 10th anniversary oh, yeah. uh, And he spoke The Vice President spoke uh, Nancy Pelosi who Was Speaker of the House At the time She also spoke um, So I think it was Very interesting working <laughs> With the President I think the big thing Is the logistic piece of it um, So all these speeches Were happening At the MLK Memorial In Washington D.C. And if you haven't been there <laughs> I highly suggest It's beautiful memorial Right on the water And it was like A beautiful fall day But just the amount Of secure I mean obvious right Security and logistics that had to go on. And this was, I mean, this was obviously post-COVID, but we were still doing COVID testing and things. So folks had to prove that they did not have COVID if they wanted to be within sort of any amount of distance near you know, the president or the vice president. You had to be sort of really good. Um, So there was that aspect of it. And then there's just the media aspect of it too, because it's like, you know, we're doing our media pitching to sort of the general media, if you will. But then he has his own White House press corps, right, that is also following him and everything he does. So in terms of just raw media, in terms of an event that I've worked in the last five years, it was probably the most just raw media in one place. <laughs> um, so it was it was interesting. you know. I mean, presidential events don't happen every day, so it was a lot of work that went into it. Um, and I think if you had asked me at like 5 o'clock that day, I'd be like, I never want to do that again. I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> but now in the rearview mirror, it's like, oh, what a fantastic day that was. Um, so it's, it's just something that I always think about, like passing the mom test. It's like a lot of the stuff that I do, my mom does not care about. Um, But when I work an event with the president, my mom cares about that. It was like on CNN. She was very excited, like, oh, my son's working this event. So (laughs) it passed the mom test.
0: That's amazing. You know, speaking about the mom test recently, you know, I've done a bunch of podcasting throughout my life and my 83 year old mother doesn't doesn't really get what happens with that. But I made it to the front page of my hometown paper yeah. or something I did. And my, my mom didn't know about it. Her friend called her and said, your son's on the paper. <laughs> and now I'm golden. I could do yeah. something really terrible. My mom's friend noticed first, which made it way better than her noticing, right? It was like –
1: you know. <laughs> Absolutely, someone had to call and let her know. Absolutely, I was fine. I used to work. My first job was at a local newspaper in like Eastern Connecticut, so I know exactly. I used to get phone calls from mothers and stuff who wanted extra copies because their son was on the cover or their high school son or whatever had just done something. Um, I feel not going way off topic, but I feel like that's something we're missing <laughs> with media. Is sort of that local connection to media is sort of uh, disappearing, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and that alters people's perceptions of reality because you know. You got potholes up the street, nobody's fixing, but everybody's worried about what's happening in Washington, right? And uh, mm-hmm. with a more robust local media, you'd have more people worried about the pothole that's affecting their lives, you know? <laughs> uh, speaking, getting back to the last event you did, uh, when I was talking, I've ta- I, w- I was interviewing somebody else recently on the show, and they said that they had done an event like at a auto factory where the president was going to show up. And they said the stressful thing was. Uh, Given the the flexibility that the White House has to have in, you know, just addressing whatever's going on in the world, that a lot of it happens last minute. Uh, did you experience that where you had a last minute having to shuffle around and get things done?
1: Yeah. So actually, the president did not confirm his attendance until about 48 hours before. So the MLK, the foundation was very confident that he was going to show and they were, I think, I think, I want, I don't want to, don't quote me, but I believe the VP was always going to speak. But the question was, would Biden speak or would Pelosi also speak? So we knew we were going to have an, an important speaker, but we did not know if it was going to be presidential speaker of the house. So we found out like 48 hours in advance, uh, and it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Things just move so rapidly. And the same thing with the media, too, um, that, you know, this is not unique to a presidential event, but it was very unique to this one. It was just like all the media very last minute was, like, I don't know if I want to go. And then they hear the Biden speak, and It's like, can I go? Yes, I would like to yeah. go. So it was sort of like a last minute sort of like rush of people and not only just media and stuff, but this was, again, sort of like in COVID, there was like a limited attendance for who could actually see this but once the people saw the motorcade people were trying to get in too so there's just so many added things especially in dc right when the presidential motorcade comes through it's like okay something is going on (laughs) we're gonna follow it so yeah there's a lot that goes on and it's all very last minute um i mean kudos to their team right? they do that every day so it's sort of like what they do but for us (laughs) it's it's a little different to do that
0: oh yeah oh geez Oh, that I I have an anxiety attack just thinking about being in that situation and seeing the black cars going through the street. The funny thing, as somebody who's in LA and I've only been to DC once, the the striking thing is when you go around town you're like, "Oh, there's another blacked out car. There's another blacked out vehicle. There's another black." <laughs> like, what? It's a, that, that's kind of the funny thing. You're like, "Oh, I am I am at the head of the the state, the federal government here." Yes.
1: It is one of the weird things about DC. I always tell this people when it really dawns on me is when I like get stuck in traffic and I'm just like really annoyed. And I'll like look to my right and be like the Washington Monument or like the Lincoln Memorial. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like this is pretty terrible. I'm stuck in traffic, but sort of the big picture every once in a while kind of comes through. Uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, I <laughs> would be re- I would be remiss if I didn't
0: talk to somebody who is an experienced PR professional and didn't ask them um, about some. um Basically, hard, hard facts about PR and, and, and thoughts about that. Um, recently, you wrote on LinkedIn, you wrote a really great blog about the recent PGA merger and why it showed the importance of being first in PR. So could you unpack that a bit and impart a little bit of wisdom on our audience?
1: Yeah, so I mean, specifically, so for non-golf fans, right? The the PGA Tour and Live Golf, you know, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia announced this merger, and I'm going to put quote unquote merger because uh, it wasn't really a merger, but they were the first ones out with the story. They did like an interview with CNBC one morning, kind of talking about this merger, this merger. We're going to bring everything together, and then as more news came out, it realized that it wasn't really as much of a merger as basically the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund was just pouring a huge amount of money into the PGA Tour you know, we can talk about why uh, the reasons are, but essentially what I was writing from a PR perspective is that because they got their story out first, that sort of became the established story. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of funny because it was like a story about like two or three weeks later where the light bulb went off and they were talking about this merger, but the word merger wasn't in the story at all. Cause it wasn't a merger, but this word merger was in the headline. And it was just such a good example of, because they were out first and they sort of got their, you know, quote unquote messaging out there. It kind of established what people initially thought. And because, and unfortunately, I mean, the the incident with the hospital bombing with, with, in the Gaza Strip, I think, was another really unfortunate example of this because the first story out became the accepted version of events. Mm-hmm. Um, even though as more truth comes out, we, don't, we still don't know the truth of what happened there. But for a lot of people, what they think happened is the first thing that they heard. And I right. think that's a lot to do with social media. It's like that first story goes out there. All the reporters, like the incentive, unfortunately, for reporters right now is not so much to be right, but to be first. Yeah. Um, so once you start getting it out there, and with the, the PGA and the Live is sort of a good example of sort of like what the media is, like so many like aggregators and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't doing their own reporting. They were retweeting this CNBC interview, retweeting the press release, and just doing it that way. And it just blows up. And it's almost impossible once you sort of establish what that narrative is to change it. So you know you can use it to your your good <laughs> if you're a good PR person. So I was crediting the PGA on their PR <laughs> on their PR aspect of it. But I just thought it was very interesting how that had kind of established this is what the narrative narrative is moving forward just because they were first.
0: It's almost like. You have to teach, you know, editors in newsrooms to have a little bit more fortitude, not to just run with being first and they go, okay, can we take 20 more minutes on this before we jump all over the story?
1: Yeah, well, it's just so, I mean, I started my newspaper career in 2003. So this was like, if social media hadn't really started yet, it was like, you know, in its infancy. So we were very much, we needed to get things right because we were a printed paper. So if we got something wrong in a printed paper, that looks a lot worse than getting something wrong on the online site where you just change a word. And it's like, okay, this got updated. And you see that a lot now with breaking news, right? Where it's like, this is a breaking news story. It's last been updated, what, 20 minutes ago. So you sort of know that this is a story that's in flux. Um, where we didn't have that luxury in 2003 or, you know, even until basically sort of, you know, Twitter and Facebook, it's like, this is the printed word. <laughs> so this printed yeah. word really better be right. And I think some of that incentive, thanks to, you know, the internet has kind of changed. And obviously, the financial incentive is, you know, the clicks and being first.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh <laughs> And then most importantly, you know, I was out playing a par three yesterday, and I was really blading the ball. Any any tips on getting – you know, we've got the PR tip, but anything on like getting under my,
1: my chip uh, shots? I would always, my, my advice to everyone playing golf is to just look at the ball when you hit it. <laughs> I know it sounds incredibly simple, so I – not to brag myself, but I was pretty good when I was in high school, so people would always ask me for tips, but I was not very good at telling people how to hit the ball. I only knew what I could do, um, so, but the one piece of advice was like, if you just if you see the ball that you're going to hit – Uh, You're more than likely at least going to hit it straight or at least forward. (laughs) I can't do anything more than that, but I can get it going that way. (laughs) That's half the
0: game. Uh, It was was funny was when I was growing up, there was a used golf club store right outside from uh, the golf court, the kind of local course we used to always play in Torrance, California. And the guy who owned it was very old, very very old. He was like 90 years old. And you go in there, and my dad would always finagle him for clubs. And then every time he left, after you bought something and he left, I would say, well, keep your head down now. And that, was, that, was, that was his one advice. All these years of playing golf, keep your head down No,
1: It's a very simple game. I remember my first golf coach was basically so like, the ball's not moving, right? Yeah. That was his big advice. Ball's not moving. Just keep your eye on it.
0: Oh, good. Thank God they're not, they're not doing that now. You know, that would be terrible. <laughs> so, Sean, I'd like to thank you for a delightful conversation yeah. here on the show. And uh, where can people follow you? Where can people learn about what you're working on, support some of the organizations?
1: Yeah, If uh, so our best place is the website, susandavis.com, and then on LinkedIn, you just find me on LinkedIn. Sean O'Leary, there's about 100 Sean O'Leary's out there, but I will be the one who just recently been on the PR30 podcast. <laughs> best way to get to me.
0: All right, well, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to maybe hearing from you again sometime in the future.
1: Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: PR360 was produced by Todd Perry in partnership with Global Results Communications. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Follow GRC on all socials at Global Results. Follow Todd on Twitter at Todd A. Perry. That's Todd with one D. Talk to you next week.